Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter, and thanks for checking out our Candidate Talk series. This week, I sat down with Congressman Seth Moulton. Moulton represents Massachusetts' 6th Congressional District, and in April, he joined the ranks of Democrats running for president. I asked him what he felt was missing from the pack that he would bring to the race. Uh, I'm the only combat veteran in this race, someone who's really led troops in combat, had to bring together Americans in some of the most difficult and divisive circumstances that exist today, in the middle of the Iraq War, where my job as an infantry platoon commander leading troops on the ground was, was fundamentally to take this amazingly diverse group of Americans from all over this country with different backgrounds, different religious beliefs, different political beliefs, and get them united behind a common mission to serve America. And that experience of building a coalition, of bringing people together in divisive times, it's the hardest and the best job I've ever had. And I think it is exactly the kind of leadership we need from a nominee to take on Trump, someone who has to build this coalition of everybody in the Democratic Party, plus independent voters, those Obama-Trump voters, and even some disaffected Republicans. And at the end of the day, I think that beating Trump is going to be harder than a lot of Democrats think. Yeah, I've heard you say that before. What are Democrats either underestimating or overestimating about Trump? Well, first of all, he's a sitting president with a fairly strong economy. Now, I I caveat the economy because it's not working for a lot of Americans, but the top line numbers are good and he's going to run on that. When I go to parts of the country that we need to win, the places where I campaigned for House candidates in the last two years, Uh, where myself and my organization, Serve America, were a big part of winning back the House. Over half the candidates that um, flipped House seats to take control uh, were folks that I supported, and they were in difficult districts, many of them fellow veterans, running in places where not a lot of Democrats go. There's a lot of support out there for Trump. And if Democrats don't offer an alternative that's a unifying alternative, not only are we not going to be able to beat Trump, But it's going to be really hard to pursue our agenda, even if we do. So there are a couple of people who seem to be making the same argument that you are. One is Pete Buttigieg, who would argue he's also served in the military. He's not. I mean, he's I I really admire his service, just to be clear. Yeah. I I led troops in combat. um, And you you see that as a very different experience. How so? No, look, he he did an important job. He was an analyst, um, you know, looking at terrorist networks or whatnot. Leadership in combat, when you're asking young Marines to risk their lives, that's a leadership experience that, um, that is unique in this race. You also have argued, as you watched the first debate, you, you were not on the debate stage either night, but you watched the debate and said you thought that the um, Democratic Party was careening to the left. What did you mean by that? Well, I think a lot of Americans felt that watching uh, and listening to the debate that um, that there's sort of a competition to appeal to the party base while forgetting a lot of Americans that we have to win over if we're going to if we're going to have a majority in this election. And and, you know, it comes through with certain issues like, for example, health care. I'm the only candidate in this race who actually gets single payer health care because I made a commitment to continue going to the VA even as a member of Congress, because I said if my fellow vets are going there and it's messed up and I'm in a position to help fix it, then I'm going to see it for myself. So I go to the VA, and you know what? It's not all that great. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of single-payer health care through the VA. The good is that the VA negotiates prescription drug prices, which Medicare does not. But the bad is that I got sent home from surgery once with the wrong medications. 
And the ugly is veterans dying on waiting lists or not getting to see the mental health care professionals they need before they commit suicide. That's not a system that I think we should force on every American. I'm with President Obama, where every American deserves health care, but we should have a public option, an optional public plan that competes with private health care plans and may the best plan win. That competition is good for the system. Were you surprised to see almost every hand raised when asked the question of whether to decriminalize crossing the border? Yes. Because I'm on day one of my administration, I would say there will be no kids in cages. There will be no family separations. I'm not going to wait for some law to be changed to make sure that that happens. But do you think we should decriminalize border crossing? I want people to come to America legally, and I want them to be encouraged to come here legally rather than have this debate about decriminalizing, you know, crossing the border illegally, (laughs) right? Let's just encourage people to come here legally by fixing our asylum system, by making sure that people get their cases judged right away. And they can either get jobs and go on our tax uh, tax, you know, pay taxes like the rest of us because they're they are legally legally here because coming here through asylum is legal if you're if you are legitimate or they're sent home right away. But they're not kept in limbo. Let's make sure that we actually strengthen the border where it needs to be strengthened at, at border crossings, where we do have a lot of illegal drugs coming through, but not building a silly concrete wall in the middle of the desert. Let's make sure that when we have immigrants come here as students on student visas that learn from our insti- our educational institutions, our universities, that we don't then send them home with their degrees to use their education, their American education in China to compete against us. These are sensible immigration reforms that we need to do. I think that just simply saying it's, you know, it's totally fine to come here illegally is not the message that we want to send to America. It's not the message we want to send to the rest of the world. I have more of an existential question to ask you about. Well, no, just looking at the House, we have a number of House members running this year, which is a new thing. Usually you don't see members of the House running for Congress, nonetheless, this many. And what I also noticed is you've got a number of you who got to Congress in sort of non-traditional ways. You either beat incumbents, Beto O'Rourke beat Mm -hmm. an incumbent, you Mm -hmm. beat a Democratic incumbent. Right. You beat a sitting Democratic incumbent, Eric Swalwell, mm-hmm. who obviously has dro- since dropped out, but he beat an incumbent. Um, or you've challenged the leadership in your party, as Tim Ryan did from Ohio and you. What do you think this says about where members are coming from? Or why is it that the members who are in some cases, the outsiders, right? They challenged the right. system and now we're running for president. What does that mean? Because I think that we all believe that the status quo isn't good enough, that, that we need to move America forward. And there's a debate right now in the party about how to do that. Yeah. You know, one of the things you saw on the debate stage is a, is a group of Democrats saying, we need to totally upend the system basically remake America from its foundations. And and I, I don't think that's right. I think this has always been a great but imperfect country. But I think our fundamentals, our values, our constitution are strong. There's another group of people who just kind of want to go back to the way things were. I don't think that's right either. I think what we need is an update. You know, it's sort of like America is running on Windows 95 right now. And um, you're certainly you're sitting here with your with your Apple laptop. You're certainly not running Windows 95. We all know that America's just kind of fallen behind, and we don't need to completely change our fundamental foundations. But we do need an update, and that needs to happen now. 
if we do wait, we're just going to leave more Americans behind. I think that's the sense of urgency that you see with some of us who, who looked at our home districts and said, I'm not going to wait for this guy to retire. I think we can do better today. I'm not going to just wait for our party leadership to retire. They've been here for a combined total of about 100 years. Like, let's get some debate here. And and that's healthy for the party. Well, let's talk about that because that debate seems to be happening. You had argued for a while that Nancy Pelosi, other members of the leadership, needed to step aside, let a new generation come forward. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi won re-election as speaker, but we're now seeing this tension with these new freshman members, again, many of whom beat sitting incumbents, to uh, Democratic incumbents, to get their jobs, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Do you feel like you've been vindicated in your message that the leadership was out of touch with this generation? It's not. A, I don't think about being vindicated or not. But I've argued since the very beginning, since my first campaign, that it's time for a new generation of leadership in our politics. And it's why I worked so hard to get so many new young voices into Congress. And I focused on the the seats that we needed to win to flip the House. Uh, These are um, people like Mikey Sherrill, Alyssa Slotkin, um, Abigail Spanberger. Uh, those are three fellow veterans who won really tough seats that we needed to take back to, to flip the House. And, and once I got here, I said, look, I want them to have a voice in our politics, too. As a result of that debate, you know, we got some good things. We got the climate change subcommittee. We got the voting rights subcommittee. Uh, we got an agreement on term limits from, from leadership that, um, that will ensure these voices uh, rise up in the future. But I do think that there's this urgency out there, and there's a reason why uh, American voters picked the most young, diverse, incredibly vibrant freshman class we've ever seen in the House of Representatives. And we want to make sure that, that we actually live up to that to that call. But that tension is also apparent as well, not just between Pelosi and what folks are calling the squad, those younger members who are getting a lot of attention, Ocasio-Cortez, Tlaib, Omar, but the the members that you mentioned in those swing, tough right. Republican districts aren't getting a whole lot of attention. And the worry is that the focus and the messaging and the policy agenda of the more liberal members is making it harder for members that you worked for in those swing districts to get reelected. Do you buy that? I, I do think there's, a, there's, there's tension there. And, and it's, it, it, it's important to remember that um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez is, is, is great. She's offering some great ideas. I just had a nice conversation with her yesterday about post-traumatic stress, for example, and mental health care. But it's important to remember that you know she, she took out a, a, a Democratic incumbent, so didn't flip a seat, didn't help us win back the House in the way that people like Abigail Spanberger and Mikey Sherrill and Alyssa Slotkin did. And um, and also Max Rose and Jason Crow and, and and a whole bunch of other folks who really won in really tough districts in districts that are going to be hard to hold on, and if we want to maintain the majority, so that members like the squad you refer to have a voice, have a have a chance to actually get a vote on some of the policies that they want to put forward, regardless of whether they pass, then we got to make sure we hold on to the majority, and that should be our top political priority. Talk to me a little bit about your plans going forward. There is a debate at the end of July. Do you expect to be on the stage there? You know, we've met the polling criteria from the DNC in nine different polls, but they, the latest thing they've told us is they're not counting those nine polls. I don't know what that means exactly. Um, and I don't think it's a great idea to, uh, you know, exclude a combat veteran from this um, 
from this debate. I think that these views need to be a part of the debate on 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 stage there. But you know what? If that's what their rules are, then then fine. Um, what matters is not what the Democratic National Committee establishment in D.C. says. It's what the American voters say. And my message is resonating on the ground. When I go to, to, to the early states, like I was in Nevada over the 4th of July, I was in New Hampshire this past weekend, um, I'm getting a great response. I'm getting people who say, this is the kind of leadership we need to bring the country together and to move us forward. Uh, this is the kind of leadership in, in tough, divided times that we need to win this election and to go toe-to-toe with Trump, Donald Trump on the debate stage. And I think that's what Democrats ultimately want in a nominee. So as long as I still get that positive response on the ground from the voters who are actually going to make this decision, uh, I'm going to keep plowing ahead. You could also make the debate stage by getting a certain number of donors, individual donors contributing to your campaign. Are you close on that metric? We're we're moving in the right direction. Um, And uh, we're certainly getting closer every day. But, you know, that kind of metric plays to a certain part of the party that responds to the flashing light emails that doesn't always represent everybody in the Democratic primary electorate. I was down at a church in South Carolina, great black church with a wonderful preacher and um, amazingly engaged congregation. And the the preacher talked a little bit about my background of service and and why I'm running for president. And, And a whole bunch of people came up afterwards and wanted pictures with me. I said, you know, if you don't mind, you know, put these on Facebook and share with your friends. And they, they looked at me and said, we, we don't have Facebook. You know, we don't even have Internet access. And how are they going to make online contributions? So by having metrics like that, we're leaving a lot of Democrats out of this conversation. And, and I think that's a Democratic Party mistake. Congressman Seth Moulton, thanks so much for coming and hey, talking with thanks me. thanks for having me. This was great.